2: Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here.
0: Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. We can make the world
3: better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules... Now, it's a call-in show, and if you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785. 201-472-0785. Or go to askbillnye.com. I am joined once again by science writer, editor, and my dear friend,
2: Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Greetings, Bill. So nice to be here. Now, Bill, I know about your fondness for the movie The Wizard of Oz. I, I do have such a fondness. That's a true <laughs> fact, not a false fact. Uh, to me, that always brings to mind Dorothy talking and singing about lions and tigers and bears. And, you know, they're fascinating creatures. This is a science show, and I got me thinking about the science of bears. That's good,
3: because today we have perhaps the world's foremost authority on uh, the we science have a, We have of a bears. bear expert. Yes, yes. Our guest today is Chris Morgan. He is a conservation ecologist and adventurer who is famous for his documentaries about about bears. He even has a podcast called The Wild with Chris Morgan. Welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Chris? Yes. Now, my understanding is your mission is to reconnect people with nature and make conservation a social norm. So you're saying people are not connected to nature and conservation is not normal. Is that what you're saying?
4: Uh, yeah, I think I am. Yeah, it sounds like a big test, doesn't it, when you put it like that? But yeah, I'm, I'm really out to connect people with nature in some warm and wonderful ways, because once we do that, conservation follows, I think. And conservation's good for all of us, right? You know, we all need these wild places and, and the knowledge that there, are, that there are wild animals out there and, and, and on a planet that we all depend upon. So it all kind of makes logical sense. But I don't think we're quite there yet, that's for sure, as, as human beings.
3: Uh, so the you know the thing, my concern as an uh, environmentalist or science educator or whatever, is that uh, these charismatic megafauna—bears, lions, and tigers, giraffes, ze- zebras, zebras—get uh, so much press uh, that it leaves out the other species. But my understanding is your claim the charismatic megafauna are important.
4: Definitely, I you know. Uh especially with, with, with the family of animals like, like bears, I think, you know, everybody seems to have an opinion about them. Um, you know, we grow up with them as, with, we sleep with them in bed as teddy bears and then later on in life we're either petrified or fascinated by them and they become man-eaters or these iconic species we want to know more about in our imaginations, you know. So I think there are really great family of species to bring people into ecology and animal behavior and conservation with like any good charismatic megafauna bring them in, I always say bring them in with grizzly bears leave them with earthworms you know because they are a very very much that <laughs> That but ecosystem does, that, does that actually
2: work? Do you find that you can convert people like, okay, if you like a bear, my God, you're going to love an earthworm.
4: <laughs> in some ways it does. You know, grizzly bears are prolific diggers. So half the food that they consume comes from underground, you know. So there are, there are earthworms included in that for sure. And, and moths, a grizzly bear can eat 40,000 army cutworm moths in the mountains of the Rocky Mountains, you know, by pulling over rocks on talus slopes and lapping up all of this protein energy in the form of 40,000 moths. Moths a day. So, so when you say are,
3: moths, you're talking about larvae of moths.
4: No, these are adult moths that, that estivate, which is a da- daily hibernation, as as you probably know, Bill. And and this daily hibernation of these moths means that they gather underneath rocks, and the bears know that. And the me- the, the moths are there during the day, so the bears will go up to these high talus slopes, pull over all, all these rocks, and underneath are these very sleepy moths, and they will consume literally up to forty thousand of them in a day, which is a huge amount of calories for them.
3: And so. The moths must have some other role in the ecosystem.
4: Yeah, really important pollinators for those high elevation meadows. So is it good that the bears are eating the (laughs) moths? Oh, darn it. (laughs) Not for the plants, it's not, I guess. (laughs) No, it's good for the bears. But then on the other hand, okay, ecology is so great, isn't it? So if the bears are eating the moths, that's not good for plant pollination. But bears actually do go on to become very important seed dispersers of plants in the form of their poop. So Mm -hmm. when a bear eats a plant that's that's gone to seed or eats uh, fruit from, from berry shrubs, they then defecate in the forest over a wide area and they replant the forest and replant those plants.
3: Plus, it must be a source of nitrogen for all sorts of plants.
4: Yes, yes, bare, definitely. Uh, feces and so on. Yeah. In fact, that nitrogen source has been really important, for example, on the BC coast, just north of where I live here and on the Alaska panhandle. When well, you say that, B.C.,
3: uh, for our listeners, British Columbia.
4: British Columbia, yeah, in, in southwest, uh, southwest Canada here, just I'm about 20 minutes from the border here where I live in the U.S. And, and that B.C. coast, especially further north, is really important grizzly brown bear habitat, as is the Alaska panhandle. And there there have been studies uh, based on nitrogen that show that that bear Uh, feces and urine are so packed full of nitrogen. It literally brings uh, um, about 20% of the nitrogen into the system for that forest there. So it's literally bear poop and pee making those forests more uh, healthy. More productive. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So let me ask you this about bears. I think about what happened in Yellowstone National Park where, all right, let's eliminate wolves. Wolves eat our farm animals. They disrupt our ranching and so on. So then when wolves were allowed to come back, somehow trees came back because the wolves were influencing the population of other grazing animals.
2: They were culling. They were doing a little culling.
3: (laughs) That were eating the seedlings. So do bears have a role like that in the forest that you study?
4: They do. They might not be as vivid as the wolf example, because that is a really awesome one. And, and whenever I tell that wolf story, people just seem to be hooked. I think people are naturally predisposed to loving ecology, but they don't know it's called ecology. And that's part of my mission as well. It's like That whole wolf story, it's the best ecology story in the world, where they have impacted everything from, from bears, birds, butterflies, trees, shrubs... Um some people say they might have even helped alter the course of rivers because they're altering the, the the vegetation on the on the in the riparian area next to the rivers. So it's a really amazing example of the wolf's impact as a keystone species in a, in a vast wild ecosystem like Yellowstone. Uh, There's kind of three categories that some or all of the bears in some cases fall into, and that those are indicator species, umbrella species, and keystone species. And some or all of the bears fall into any number of those, so they become really interesting ecologically.
2: Well, hold on, break it break it down for us. What are those three different categories?
4: An, an indicator species basically shows that a species if a species is there, it indicates the health and vitality of an ecosystem um so if you've got a specific bear species in a specific place it means that ecosystem is doing fairly well because that bear wouldn't be able to exist if it wasn't a healthy ecosystem in terms of the food shelter water supply and all the other things that it needs Um, a keystone species is uh, a a species that influences the ecosystem in a a key way Um, the keystone being the wasn't the keystone stone the, the final still block is. in the middle of an yeah. ar- Oh Yes, yeah. you know, <laughs> it still is. Yeah. Yes. This keystone still is the keystone. Yeah, yeah you take yes. it out, it falls down. Yeah. That's right, uh, exactly, yes. Yeah, Thanks all, for they've, reconfirming that.
2: Yeah, they have a whole state. They, cre- they created Pennsylvania all, all around yeah. that idea. All That's about right. that, yeah. Thank
4: you. Thank you. God. Okay, um, so the keystone species is a clear one. Wolves are a great example of that in Yellowstone. And then umbrella species, I think, is the most powerful one for bears. You know, because the umbrella factor is if you protect a population of bears, you're protecting a large area, a large geographical area, especially, let's take a grizzly bear, for example. So, if a grizzly bear needs two or three or four hundred square miles as a home range, You put a population of those bears together, and suddenly it's a a massive ecosystem. I live next to the North Cascades here, and there's 10,000 square miles of grizzly bear habitat there. There may only be two or three grizzly bears left in it, though. They're highly endangered here locally, this bear population that I've, I've worked on for a while. So if that population came back, though, and was protected in such a way that grizzly bears need... They play this role as an umbrella species, which means they are protecting that landscape and all of its resources for countless other species. So very much that umbrella kind of effect. And, and bears all over the world do that. Sun bears in Borneo, tropical bears, protect them, protect the rainforest. Polar bears, protect them, protect the entire Arctic. Um, Grizzly bears, protect the Rocky Mountains, the whole ecosystem of the Rocky Mountains, by protecting grizzly bears, you know. And if you ended up putting all eight bear species together, uh, I did a back of the envelope, literal scribble one one day a few years ago and figured out if you put them all together, those eight bear species, and you protected them, you'd be protecting one third of the Earth's land surface.
3: Okay, so... You know, we talk uh, nowadays, a very common phrase, the your origin story. How did you get interested in bears?
2: Yeah, a lot of kids love bears, but clearly something really stuck with you because you seem, if I may say, a little bear-obsessed. I
4: am, I am a little bear-obsessed, Corey. Uh, I, I, uh, I'm I, English, so there have been no bears in England for a thousand years. The Romans killed them off. The, the island was too small for Romans and, and brown bears there.
3: Why did um, they kill them off? Because they were interfering with their... Agriculture. They were eating people. There were trouble. Like,
4: yeah, I think that um, they probably just competed for space that the Romans wanted. Um, and, and, and Britain is a small country that was growing in population at that point, and it left little room for a big wild animal like a brown bear. A, a brown bear, same as our, our grizzlies over here. And Romans finished them off. And Romans were scooping up the wildlife from all over the world to fight in the Colosseum and do battles with. They put grizzlies against gladiators in Italy. And, and, and you know, it was just kind of a strange relationship they had with wildlife. So I can only assume that Romans really felt like they were a competitor in some way for space or resources. And and, and the bears lost. Um but as, as an English guy, I, I, it, it seems unusual to have a bear fascination, of course. But I came over when I was – this is my origin story, Bill. I came over when I was 18 years old to the States to visit and work on a summer camp in New Hampshire in a little town named Berlin, New Hampshire, New um, Hampshire and i was there to work as a summer camp counselor with these kids all these rural kids and each week they'd have a different biologist come in to talk to the kids about their specialty so one week a woman came in talking about her moose research and then another week a guy came in talking about his coyote research and then this bear biologist shows up to talk to the kids about his work and i was the most fascinated guy in the room i was only 18 at the time and i like, oh you can study bears this sounds cool so i bugged him for a couple of weeks and um uh, in that two weeks I, I just you know kept on phoning him and, and wanted to get out into the field. I asked him, "Can I come and see what you do?" and I was fascinated by your story and So he picked me up one night and it was nine o'clock one night in the pitch dark, and I thought this is a little weird. He's picking me up at night to take me into the field to do bear <laughs> research. so we got to the I thought he's just trying to shut me up, you know he's going to put me in a ditch somewhere, but we got to the end of the road of the summer camp and instead of taking a right towards the forest where I thought the bears would be. He took a left into the town of Berlin and uh, we pulled up at the city dump. And on the city dump, under this moonlight, there were 14 black bears, 14 of them. And I'll never forget the sight. And it just stuck with me. And his job as a biologist was to tranquilize them and uh, chased them around that garbage dump, radio collared them for his study. So I helped him that night. And, so uh, you d- you trank gunned
3: fourteen bears? <laughs> yeah. Or did, did most of them run away?
4: Most like, of them ran away, and I and I'm chasing them in the pitch dark. Wait, this is this your stinky- very first adventure as a high school student. <laughs> yes,
2: <laughs> as an eighteen year old. <laughs> exactly.
4: Yeah, yeah, and that was that's thirty two years ago now, and it, it obviously stuck with me. You know, it was one of. You have those moments in life, don't you, where it was, it was pivotal and it felt, I mean, I, I remember at one point it was being, it pitch dark and we couldn't find this tranquilized bear and I knew it was in this garbage dump somewhere. And I mean, we really- shot
3: it and it, it, the bear wanders around for a few minutes before it gets knocked out. It's not a James Bond movie. This is real. It takes a few minutes, right?
4: It does, yeah. And they can cover quite a bit of ground in that time. So as soon as he would take a pot shot, I'd be off chasing the bear that I thought he'd captured, you know, flashlight in hand. And it was a very bright moonlight, which helped. But still, there were very dark patches of this forest because there were trees around it. And um, at one point, I just went really quiet in the darkness. And I just heard this. (laughs) (laughs) and it was it was a bear snoring about five feet away from my feet I'm like this is the best thing in the world i want to do this you know so but was, weren't
3: you so bears have a reputation for uh, aggression for yeah. uh, mauling you for uh, interaction where you come out the loser as the human but you were into this
4: i didn't i don't think i knew that at the time <laughs>
3: <laughs> they're bears for- Dorothy I, I, is honestly, not going I, lions and tigers and mobs.
2: <laughs> or lions and tigers and bears. Yes, I'd like to see some. Uh, yeah,
3: <laughs> Lions and tigers and earthworms. Cool. No, well, come on. You had no
4: idea that there was a potential danger? You must have. I don't know. I guess. I guess the adrenaline took over. And I think that's why it stuck with me so much, that it was such an unusual situation. And I was so excited and so sort of beyond thrilled that I was out with this guy and doing this in the wild and I'd always been obsessed with nature snakes and lizards and ants were my first thing you know and all the rest of it never did I imagine that I'd be chasing a bear around a garbage dump and it was just it hit me like a truck I'm like this is I think what I want to do with my life it just kind of set me off on this journey to other places I came back to Europe after that summer a changed man and I thought where's the nearest bears to me and they weren't in England, uh, uh, and, and there were about four in France at that time, and I discovered there were about 50 or 60 brown bears left in the northern mountains of Spain. And I loved Spain already. I'd visited there as a, as a teenager and kid with my family and stuff, And but I would never knew that there were bears in the north of Spain. It's like, where have I been? I'm suddenly surrounded by bears, even in Europe. So I went to Spain looking for them and found a, a Spanish brown bear there, which is incredibly rare. In the Cordillera Cantabrica, this mountain range amongst oak trees, and so they eat acorns and, and beech nuts.
3: So the bears you've referred to it's all sound like vegetarians.
4: Yeah, they are a lot of them. Yeah,
3: except eating moths isn't a vegetarian, no?
4: <laughs> right, not technically, is it? No, I, it really does depend. Take brown bears for example. You know, there's probably two hundred thousand brown bears slash grizzly bears globally around the northern hemisphere. Um, but that's then, that's not very many. It's not, is it? But then you get to somewhere like Spain. There's 200 now. That's become a success story since I was there for 60 or 70 of them 30 years ago. Now there's 200 plus brown bears in Spain. It's amazing. I was just in Italy. There's 50 brown bears in Italy. Um, there's a, there's a, about a dozen in the in the Pyrenees in, in, in France. Uh, but wherever you find these bears, they specialize in different ways. They're almost like different local cultures of a brown bear. So whatever is it, actually the coastal brown bears we were just talking about is a great example. They focus on salmon when the salmon comes in they've got access to all that high calorie food
2: so they actually they've different regional diets yeah regional bear cuisine
4: yes very much so yeah almost like humans in some ways hey and very much the behavior relates to it as well coastal brown bears um let's call them brown grizzlies because that's what they are coastal brown bears are very well fed high density population Uh, um, used to evolving and growing in a community that's dense with bears, lots of them, shoulder to shoulder, the highest communities of bears in the world on the coast where there are salmon because there's lots of food for them. They're pretty chilled. I've sat five, ten feet away from female brown bears and and cubs, grizzlies and cubs on the coast. Now, I'd never do that in Denali. I'd never do that in Yellowstone. I mean, 200 yards is close for a female with cubs in Yellowstone. And it's because they don't have the habitat there. They don't have the high. So they've, they've become more defensive on, in those interior ecosystems. Um, Italy, they call them Uncle Bear in Italy. They've never attacked a person in Abruzzo National Park. The bear's there. Um, there's 50 of them two hours from Rome in a highly dense area of human beings. And So each of these sort of little communities of bears within even just one species is quite distinct in what they eat and how they behave.
1: Stick around for more Science Rules after this. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod fifty to get fifty percent off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod five zero for fifty percent off.
3: Science rules is back. I was in Glacier National Park a few years ago and there was a grizzly way, way up on this hillside. I mean, in English units, two, three miles away as the quadcopter. Flies, but everybody wanted to stay away from it. And a big thing is walking around with your bear uh, pepper spray uh, and then bear bells like you wear a bell, and the idea is the bear is going to hear you come in and go do something else. Uh, Do bears attack people?
4: They do. It does happen. And, you know, I'm a bear advocate and a bear lover and bear conservationist. And so, uh, but I always try to stay realistic about it and honest. Grizzly bears do attack and kill people. It does happen. It's rarer than you might think from the newspaper headlines, because newspapers love great headlines, don't they? And so, you know, these bears are really just trying to mind their own business for the most part. And there are certain situations where you can run into a bear and where it feels pretty hairy uh, and, and usually when it's the, in the case of a grizzly, it's when you've surprised them. Mm-hmm. So you come over the brow of a hill, or so the bear you saw in, in Glacier Bill. if you'd come around the bend and that was the bear right there, 20 yards away, you'd have a very different situation on your hands if you'd surprised it or come over the brow of a hill and it didn't know you were there, it's heads down in the berries. Worst situation, it's sitting on a carcass of an animal that it's killed and getting really defensive over. Bears get very testy in that situation. Or classically, female grizzly bears with cubs defending their cubs do the bear bells work just wearing a bell I, I never recommend them the best thing is the human voice so to avoid this surprise you want to make noise so that you don't you don't have that sudden close encounter with a grizzly so Wait, chris
2: so, have, have you ever been in a dangerous situation or, or yes. a situation where you felt out of control
4: um I've definitely been charged a bunch of times by, by brown bears on the coast of Alaska, but not physically attacked, but definitely charged. What do you yeah. do? Well, in this one situation, it was a little—it was a little intense because it was the breeding season. So that's—we uh, were there in early June, and the meadows there are full of bears, and the females Where are is all. This, now? this is on the uh, Alaska Peninsula, so in Katmai National Park, uh, across from Kodiak Island, there and Bear Central, and we filmed there a lot, and I've. I've I've spent a lot of time among the bears there. It's amazing because they're they're everywhere. Um, And those... Those bears, they're busy in June. The the, the males are trying to find females, and the females, there's so many of them, are actually almost competing for male attention, which is quite unusual. Usually it's all fights between all males, but even the females are testy with each other. So it's just intense electric energy on these meadows. And I was there with my buddy Joe, who was filming. Joe Pondekorva was filming uh, uh, for a project with us there, and this female comes running over this hill, uh, towards us and we're like whoa this female bear looks like she's charging towards us but didn't seem like she was charging aggressively at us and i thought it looks like she's running away from something else and surely sure enough over the hill behind her comes this giant male bear like salivating and just full of testosterone and that hot pursuit of this this lady bear and uh she decides that she's going to go right behind us and, and sits down behind us about 15 feet away. 15 so gonna, feet? Yeah, really close. where you're going? No, it's not. And so the females behind us, and they've learned that the big males are really nervous of humans here. There's a few humans that visit this place and, and go to watch bears. And the females, and even females with cubs, will use humans as a barrier. So this bear male Wait comes Wait a second, you were a human s- shield bear I, I guess I guess so looking back yes we were yeah <laughs> and so this male runs over behind her and suddenly stops in his tracks and he's about uh, 40 feet in front of us and she's 15 feet behind and he's chop they have all this really interesting uh, behavior so they'll jaw pop which is like this sound of so they're basically clasping clamping their teeth together and you can hear their molars basically doing that. And so that's one thing. And then when they're highly stressed, they'll salivate. And he was really salivating. And he, he sees his girlfriend behind us. He looks at us, looks at her. And then he just charges right at us. And I'm, when we got it all on film, um, I, I, I'm saying, hey, Bear, it's okay, Bear. It's okay. It's okay. And it worked. He ground to a halt, kicking dust up about uh, 10 or 12 feet away from us. And 10 or 12 feet? Yeah, it was pretty intense. And then he backs up and walked around us. But I think the point is that even a bear that riled up and that mad and that pissed that we were between him and his potential girlfriend still didn't want to have a physical altercation with us. He'll do everything to avoid it. And, and, and that's generally the nature so of it. So what
3: happened with the lady bear? He went around you. He did,
4: and on they went. <laughs> the, the chase continued.
3: <laughs> so I got to ask you about this. We're talking about conservation. We're talking about, you're talking about the U.S., you went to Italy, you went to Spain. Are some countries good at this, at conservation, and some are not?
4: Oh, that's a great question. Um, yes, which is why it's important that we have these global policies through bodies like the IUCN, the International Association for the Conservation of Nature. Uh, there's even a bear organization, the International Association for Bear Research and Management, and it's made up of six 800 bear biologists and people who are are passionate about bear conservation Um, because not every country is the same and not every country treats bears the same Um, some countries persecute their wildlife especially when it comes to big carnivores like bears and wolves and i've worked in those countries uh, and and I like was like,
3: what, what Well, there
4: were, you know, and I don't want to point fingers at countries doing the wrong thing because sometimes it's down to survival. Uh, in one situation, I was in northern Pakistan years ago uh, working on a brown bear population there. With a team of amazing guys and trying to do two things research what the bears are up to how many bears are there why they're attacking livestock and in this case they were attacking the livestock of nomadic gujar herdsmen uh, and, and their goats and sheep are everything that they've got so if a bear kills one or two of them or steals the cheese or you know these people want to kill the bear so there's lots of retribution when it comes to these large carnivores and that was a really tricky situation there so so i went and i was part of a team over there made up of a a, a couple of unlikely guys who i thought were bear biologists before i got there come to find out we sat down around the mess tent on the first day and and uh one of them turns out to be a dentist and the other one was a chemical engineer (laughs) but they just loved bears and wanted to help them in their own country And so I joined these guys and describing how a bear ticks and how they could avoid these conflicts with bears and why they're of value. And fast forward, I think just a few years later, this was uh, 25 years ago that I was there, it became a national park, DSI National Park in Northern Pakistan. So there was a case of something where it was turned from a negative into a positive. The bear population is stabilized now and it's it's, it's all turned around.
3: I have a question that uh, I think a listener is going to ask. Can we, can we roll that uh, digital recording?
0: Hi, Bill. Heather in Ohio here. I was just wondering if it actually does more harm or good to keep endangered animals in zoos and in captivity.
4: Zoos, good or bad? Um, not all zoos are built the same. Really good zoos are really awesome and really important for conservation. So, um, what's an example of a good zoo? One's on the doorstep here Woodland Park Zoo. They support conservation all over the world. They're based in Seattle. They do in situ conservation and also on location conservation, meaning that they're doing conservation inside the walls of their zoo, but they take it outside as well. So, you know, they support conservation partners all around the world. San Diego Zoo, another awesome zoo. But then there are those on the list that are just basically, uh, you know, captive facilities for animals to make a buck off visitors. But, but that's the other end of the spectrum. So, yes, that's super important.
3: What about uh, preserving diversity, genetic diversity?
4: Yeah, a lot of these, a lot of these zoos are basically uh, keeping the genes of the future alive for these species. So they play that critical role, totally, for sure. And then not to mention their educational value. You know, millions of people coming through the doors of those zoos that would, might never get a chance to go to Alaska and see a bear. Um, I struggle sometimes to see bears in captivity, but but when I look at the positive side of, of, of um, how they're being seen by the public and what the public are learning about them and... We do this thing at the zoo every year called Bear Affair, and it's super fun and educational. It's great for the bears. It's great for the people there. They've got these two giant brown bears, and we set up camps inside the enclosure there at Woodland Park Zoo and let the bears go at it because the camps, we've put sandwiches inside the tent. We've put coffee grinds everywhere. the stick of pepperoni under the pillow, everything you're not supposed to do in bear country when you're supposed to stay safe. They go
3: after coffee grounds?
4: and They go for anything that smells, yeah. I um, had a, um, When
3: I was in the Boy Scouts, there was this myth, or it was common to say, don't keep chapstick in right. your
4: pocket because bears love it. Is that true? It is. Anything that really? smells slightly alien. Yeah, oh, wow. yeah. Okay. Anything. I think it's, it's petroleum-based, right? You know, so plastics they love. Anything that, you know, of course, something like toothpaste or candy or any kind of food that goes without saying, but anything that just has a slightly different smell. See, so you were talking about... This idea of preserving genetic diversity. Earlier, you mentioned, you know,
2: four bears left in France or sixty left in Spain. Places like that, where you have these tiny populations, there must not be very much genetic diversity left. I mean, do you need zoos and captive populations to keep those keep those bear populations healthy?
4: Certainly, for some species, and 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 bears don't aren't. It's not too detrimental to bears when you have a limited gene population, gene, gene pool. Um, but for certain species, it really does have a, a, a negative impact on their ability to, to reproduce and, and 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 produce fertile offspring, for example. So zoos are definitely important for that, yeah.
3: All right. Speaking of zoos, polar bears are a charismatic, iconic species that are connected very closely with climate change. How serious is the situation with polar bears? Because, man, when you see them floating on that last bit of ice, it's just breaks your heart right
4: it's serious uh strangely enough i was supposed to be in spitzbergen right now this week um, in norway yes yeah, yeah i i uh, guide expeditions up there each year and it was this week but because of uh, covid19 we're not there and it's really a front line for that sort of stuff. You know, you're able to see bears and how they're behaving and how they're being impacted. There is one location. There's another location that's a microcosm of what's happening to polar bears as well, and that is Churchill, Manitoba. Spitsbergen is one of the most northerly population of polar bears in the Arctic. And then in the subarctic, one of the most southerly populations of polar bears is Churchill, Manitoba. And the bears there, because they're so southerly, right on the coast of Hudson Bay, which creates its own weather system and climate deeply deeply cold in the winter perfect for bears but then warms up to the extent in the summer every year more and more and more now that the ice doesn't freeze quite as quickly as it used to so it's leaving bears on land restricted not able to get onto this onto the ice and follow the ice because it's melting so more rapidly traditionally
3: sooner- bears would get polar bears would get on the ice
4: float around with the ice, hunt seals. And so every every fall slash winter, the bears are on land waiting for that ice to refreeze in Hudson Bay so that when it does, they can get back onto that ice because it's the only place that they can hunt because they only hunt really effectively one thing. Uh, for all intents and purposes. Polar bears are good at one thing, and that is snatching a seal from the surface of the ice, as my colleague Andy DeRosha clearly says. That's all. It's a really short resume. (laughs) Just look at where they hunt and how they hunt. In in the most extreme conditions on Earth, it could be minus 50 degrees in the middle of the Arctic winter, and they're out hunting seals. But not only that, it's pitch dark, remember, right? So they're hunting seals in minus 50 with nothing but their nose to find a meal, and it's pitch dark as well. I mean, it's incredible. So And they also have this dark skin and and fur hair that is hollow, translucent. So it almost gives this yellowish sort of glint with the sun shining through it. And that helps insulation and it helps them float. Uh, It makes them such great swimmers. Um, Everything about a bear is just finely tuned.
0: Science Rules will be right back.
1: You're listening to Science Rules.
0: We have
3: uh, an email from somebody uh, in Montana. The person writes, hey, Bill, in Montana and Idaho, we have a lot of ranches. We also have the highest number of bears and wolves in the area. A lot of people in these states want to eradicate them, wolves especially. I was wondering what effects this might have on ecosystems in Idaho and Montana, and if there's a better way to defend one's livestock and our predators at the same time. And you got an idea there, Chris.
4: That's a really good point. And, and it, they are um, divisive in some ways, these, these species, right? There are people that love them and will do anything to protect them. And there are those that loathe them and want them gone. And I've worked quite a bit with wolves as well. And, and in fact, one of our, our, we just did a podcast on wolves here in Washington state that focused on a guy named, who's, who's a range rider. And he's, he's, for all intents and purposes, looks, smells, walks, sounds like a cowboy, but he's a guy who's on the side of the wolves who works with ranchers to protect their cattle from, from... What, uh, he has a
3: business card that says range rider?
4: Yeah. Isn't that the coolest? Oh, yeah,
3: yeah. What is, okay. What does he do? He ride, rides a range. He now, rides he the range do?
4: on horseback. He's got, in this case, his name's Dan Curry. In this case, he's got three Doberman pincher dogs that he's training to work around wolves. And he keeps the cattle safe from wolves and keeps the wolves safe from people who don't want them there. And, and sometimes that's the ranchers. How does he Because they threaten do the, the ranch, rancher's livestock. Mostly through diplomacy, honestly, with both the wolves and the ranchers. So he'll sit down around a fire pit and drink beers with ranchers and talk wolves and the reality of them and try and bust the myths because there's so many out there. And uh, and then he'll literally walk around. He'll, he's like a, the profession has been around for about 3000 years. I think, you know, it's called a shepherd. He's basically a shepherd when it comes to protecting the cattle from the from the wolves. And so, so he patrol. talks to the
3: wolves. Is the, do the wolves sign treaties? What, how does work?
4: <laughs> Just the sheer presence of someone on the landscape around cattle will keep the wolves away from them. And then there's other things. There's flagging that people use to distract the wolves and keep them away. Some wolves are radio collared so they can be monitored. But it's not, it's not always easy. And to, to Montana and the question there, I mean, it, is, it can be intense. There's, there's a, a good number of wolves over there, and there's a, a rebounding population of grizzly bears. And for conservation, that's been great. Uh, but for people who make a livelihood on the land, it's not always easy.
2: Do people also just have to accept a certain level of loss that's just going to happen anyway, a certain level of livestock loss?
4: Yeah, I think it's invariable, Corey, because it's it's going to happen. Large carnivores and cattle or sheep on the landscape are not an easy mix. We have a car. Let's
3: uh,
1: roll that digital recording. Hey, Bill, this is Mike from Redwood City, California. The pandemic caused many national parks to shut down, which allowed much of the animal life to become more lively. Parks are now reopening, and these lively animals will experience more human contact again. Will these drastic swings in interactions do more damage to preserving the wildlife compared to pre-pandemic conditions? Thank you, have a great day, bye.
4: What an awesome question, yeah. You know, when, when it comes to bears and other highly evolved mammals that are super smart and used to working their way around any number of obstacles in their lives as and the, the, through the, the, the daily course of their lives, humans are one factor, right? And thankfully, most of these species are now co-evolving and evolving and growing in a world where humans are a big part of their landscape. So they adapt very quickly to it, whether we're there or not. I mean, right down to the micro level is, is kind of... You know, the studies that have been done on trails in Alaska that are heavily used by grizzlies and heavily used by humans. And the grizzly bears, remote cameras watched this, grizzly bears will just come off the trail, let the human walk by, and then politely come back onto the trail and go about their day. They work around us all the time. So the bigger scale of COVID-19 definitely is allowing them to breathe a little easier, have more space, uh, be, be interrupted in their feeding less, be it'd be interrupted in, in the raising young cubs if they're a female grizzly bear, for example. Definitely, they're breathing easier right now. But the reopening of it and resurgence of humans coming in, as long as we're smart and as long as the rangers are able to do their job and keep people out of danger and from doing crazy, stupid things which people can do around wildlife, then the wildlife will adapt around us. All um, right. So
3: hold it. So you're inferring, or fi- or think you understand what a bear is interested in doing, bears feeding, bears doing anything. Is there any evidence that bears like to see the humans go by? You know, it's fun to watch. Because I say it because we like to watch wildlife. And you you can't beat if you're in a room and there's a baby or a dog. Everybody wants to talk to the dog. Do bears do the same thing with humans? Is there any way to figure
4: that out? Okay. I think I have, I think I have figured that out, Bill. I've got a, an amazing experience to share with you one day i was up in uh, alaska on the alaska peninsula back in katmai national park had a small group of friends with me about five or six of us and i wanted to take them down. started out with
3: six came back with five (laughs) fair country
4: (laughs) stuff happens they were slow and old what can i say you gotta gotta adapt (laughs) to a little bit of loss my friend always used to say 10% attrition come on
3: what what's the big deal
4: So go ahead. There you are. I wanted to take him down this valley where I knew there was a wolf pack. And I wanted to teach him how to howl for a wolf. So it being Katmai National Park, we get to this little Brava hill where I thought our sound would carry. And there's a giant brown bear sitting down about, uh, must be about 30, 40 yards away from us. Just mind his own business, literally just sitting in this little gravel bar. And the bear's looking at us and uh, almost like, oh, didn't expect to see you here kind of thing. So definitely observing us. Well, I teach these people how to howl. We do this... This wolf comes out of the alder thicket onto its own little gravel bar (laughs) and... The people I was with were blown away. They're like, oh my God, it worked. We howled this and this guy wolf has came superpowers. out. superpowers, yeah. <laughs> but the, the most amazing thing to witness was the bear. <laughs> the bear looked at the wolf like as surprised as we were to see the wolf. Then the bear looks at us like, that's amazing. Then looks back at the <laughs> wolf. <laughs> it, was, it, it was definitely this bear watching us and processing, those are humans, that's a wolf, but they're communicating. And he was as blown away as we were. Okay, here's the thing. If you were king of the forest,
3: Chris, Mr. Morgan, if you were running the show, what is it you want everybody to know about bears?
4: Well, that they are incredibly intelligent, incredibly patient. One of my colleagues described them as patient to me once, and I'm like, that's so perfect. They're bears. Who's going
3: to mess with us?
4: They're bears. (laughs) But we are, God, they've been through some persecution at our hands, though. I mean, they've been around their ancient ancestors, ancient ancient ancestors, five million years. And, you know, we owe it to them to leave space on this planet for them. But at the same time, that space that they need is the space that we need. Because in that space is the fresh water, the natural resources, the clean air. Everything that we need as human beings can be protected by bears, by us looking after their needs. And honestly... It just seems like it's the right thing to do. I'm always trying to figure out, back to this reconnecting people with nature, it's almost like, how can we change our perspective of what these creatures are? And that they have an inherent right to live on this planet, just as any of us do. That it's our planet along with them. It's their planet along with us. And I think there's deep power in that that is really good for humans as well. So you recommend having
3: what would be parks? Like, bears can live here, we're going to live over here.
4: You just hatched an idea here today, Bill. That's awesome. You can have international bear parks based on a specific species in specific countries around the world, all around the eight bear species, uh, that protect the core habitat of, of those bear species, and it's called an international bear park for people to go and visit, understand, not for people to be excluded from, but for bears to run the course of their natural lives, right? And just operate as part of the ecosystem like they were intended to. I think it's a lovely idea.
2: The the Bill Nye International Bear Park, yes. (laughs) They would
3: watch us. We'd watch them. We'd take meetings. You'd be out there calling wolves. It sounds
2: idyllic. Corey, do you hear that sound? Bill, Bill, son of thunder means lightning, and lightning means lightning round. So, Chris, this is the lightning round. We
3: ask you a question. You give, us a, uh, you give us your quick answer. Here we go. There are only eight species of bears, right? Can you rank them from worst to best? <laughs> in
4: terms of what?
2: Your call. You Just decide. Qu- in terms of quality. Like, what's the highest Qual- quality bear and what's the lowest quality bear?
4: <laughs> <laughs> Got to be grizzly bear first. Got to be polar bear second, I would say. So what's the Um, worst bear? Worst bear. Worst bear. Oh, God. There's no worst bear. No, you just love them all. Until I love them all, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. there we go.
3: Okay, what's your favorite nature documentary that you did not make?
4: (laughs) Uh, Planet Earth.
3: Planet Earth. There you go. In 30 seconds or less, what should you do if you encounter a bear on a hiking path?
4: Depends on the circumstances and the bear's behavior and the bear's species. If it's a sudden encounter with a grizzly bear, play very deferential, back away, talk slowly, calm the bear down, calm yourself down. If it's a black bear that's pursuing you deep in the backcountry and he means business and he attacks you, fight back for all it's worth because he's acting predatorily.
3: And so you just fight back and he'll give up after a while, after he has your arm or what have you. Yes.
4: (laughs) Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have answered that that way because there's a lot of nuances to it, but uh, I don't want people to get into trouble, but right. you could, so you could
2: easily pick the wrong course of action if you don't know what kind of a bear you're dealing with.
4: Yes, yes. If it's a brown fall down, if it's a black fight back, there's even a little rhyme for it, you know oh, so wow, there uh, you but, go. But, there's, but there's nuances of that as well, so don't don't take it for rote.
3: Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, there are many I had teddy bears, uh, one of whom uh, Pixie wore a bow tie. What's your favorite fictional bear?
4: Oh, Paddington, a Peruvian spectacled bear. Yeah. And we've, we've, I've spent time with my friends who study those bears and they're amazing. Yeah. So definitely, definitely. Now,
3: if you could, would you want to become a bear?
4: Oh, God. Yes.
3: And what (laughs) would you do as a bear?
4: I'd be If I could be a grizzly bear for 24 hours, I would die a happy man. My brain would explode because the nose of a bear would just, I think, flip my synapses out. It's more than any of us can even conceive what a bear's nose is, 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 uh, is, is capable of. But wait, o- only
2: for 24 hours. What if you, what if you uh, had to kind of commit to the long term?
4: <laughs> I would still be grizzly.
3: It's grizzly all the way. This is fantastic. Chris, thank you so much. Our guest today has been Chris Morgan, adventurer, wildlife conservationist, and check out his podcast, The Wild with Chris Morgan, where he uh, talks about he gets you engaged with through audio with nature. And remember, everybody, when it comes to lions, tigers, and especially bears, science science rules. rules. If you like Science Rules, and I hope you do, please take a moment to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. Helps us out, helps us learn who is listening and what you want to listen to, so thank you. Be sure to look at our socials for information about our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on everything. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, and I hope you would, Give us a call at 201 472 201-472-0785, or submit a question at askbillnye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and our very own Corey S. Powell. Casey Halford mixed this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Martorana is our executive producer. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer, CCO, here at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, everyone, Corey, you ready? Science Science rules. rules!
1: Stitcher.